You're listening to Phanalysis, a sci-fi and fantasy TV podcast. And in this episode, we are talking about episode 314 of The 100, Red Sky at Morning. Or for the mathematically inclined, episode 3.14, Red Pie at Morning. <laughs> that too. My name is Chris, and we have a guest host for this episode, Sally. Thank you for joining us, Sally. Hello, Chris. Thanks for inviting me. So how about how about your general review of this episode, Sally? Yeah, well, I'll say I enjoyed this episode. Um, I don't know if, uh, well, I know you know this, Chris, but I came to the 100 a little bit late. I watched season one and kind of left off and then heard through the grapevine, i.e. you and some other friends, that it had gotten really good. And so I went back to it, but hadn't quite caught up to real time when the entire fandom exploded and I knew something uh, crazy had happened. And so I put on some emotional body armor. So I feel like I have stayed emotionally detached from the characters, which has allowed me to enjoy, you know, this season because I tried to avoid getting invested in them because I knew that it would break my heart if I did. So that's a really long answer, but I feel like I need to qualify <laughs> why I enjoy it. We we should clarify also, it's it's our mutual friend, Rebecca. I'm just going to throw you under the bus, Rebecca. Rebecca's the one who got <laughs> us both to watch. Right, that's true. Thanks, Rebecca. No, I'm just kidding about... <laughs> I'm just kidding about thanks. No, I really do mean it. I'm, I'm enjoying this show. I think it's asking interesting questions. I think it's also you know, made some really crazy choices. And, you know, it's been interesting to engage in dialogue and observe dialogue that the fandom is having about it. But in terms of storytelling that surprises me in terms of the plot, I like this episode because a lot of the things that I thought were going to happen didn't. And then the plot twists that did happen, I was very surprised by. So I'll tell you more about them. Alrighty. I liked this episode okay. As always, I could do without the torture scenes because there are so many torture scenes this season and I don't understand why. I mean, I think part of my issue is that we're seeing all of them and they go on for a really long time. It's it, this season is torture intensive and it's bothering me, but I liked the thematic stuff in this episode. I feel like this episode really hit that stuff really hard it's all about, you know, what sacrifices or compromises you're willing to make for your cause. And I, I think those are, as you're saying, like, those are interesting questions to ask. And it's sort of painful to watch the characters have to make those decisions. But that's always what the show's been about, really. So it's interesting that a phrase like torture intensive is so appropriate. You wouldn't necessarily think that you'd want you know, part of your entertainment to be able to be described as torture intensive, but it makes you think about is torture ever appropriate? And I think a lot of people in the country, the USA and other countries in the world have already decided that it is not. And when it does happen in war, it is universally condemned. And I'm thinking of, you know, recent wars that the United States has been in and we have perpetrated torture. I kind of wonder, I guess, if, um, you know, this show is trying to make us take another look at our, what we're willing to enable from leaders of our country. Well, of course, they especially highlight that in this episode, they've got waterboarding 
specifically in this episode, which I mean, the just like the word waterboarding, you know, I mean, it's there's there's a visceral reaction to that. Yeah, I feel like anyway. Well, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where, um, you know, you've been swimming or, you know, rafting and you've fallen overboard and accidentally inhale some water. Or you can't breathe in another situation. It is really panic inducing. And, you know, when I see waterboarding in entertainment, I try to put myself in the place of the person being waterboarded. And I just I can't imagine. Well, here's a weird thing, too. A, a not so fun fact, if you will about waterboarding as shown on television, the actors and or stunt people are actually waterboarded. There's no way to fake it. So when you see somebody, like a depiction of waterboarding on television, like somebody is actually getting waterboarded, which just makes me feel weird about the whole thing. But I did not know that. And now you do. <laughs> That's awful. I know. I found that out last Last year, uh, Orphan Black, they waterboarded a character on Orphan Black, and that was one of the little trivia bits was, yeah, there's not a way to fake it. If they show it on screen, that person is actually getting waterboarded. Fun fact, authentic torture. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Actually, I think there was some behind the scenes thing for this episode where they were talking about how the stunt team was actually excited about it. <laughs> Which... Oh probably says something about the stunt team. But anyway, <laughs> let's move on to plot stuff. All right. So let's talk about Raven and Monty. Because uh, they went full Matrix with Raven. <laughs> if, if you've seen the Matrix, there's like the whole thing where they're watching lines of code. And like, oh, look, they're doing whatever thing as they point at a screen of nothing but symbols. <laughs> mm -hmm. Which is exactly what Raven was doing this episode. She was. And, you know, kind of about the code, too, I was reminded of, I can't remember who said it, it was something about drama. If a gun appears in the first act, then it must be fired by the third act. And, uh, you know, as soon as Raven said, you know, I could go in there and delete this thing, you know, even though Monty was like, no, 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 don't do that. Like, you knew that it was eventually going to happen that she'd do it. I had that that moment, too. It's like, clearly she's going to do it. It's already in her head. <laughs> and, you know, even seeing her, like, I mean, obviously, Raven and all of the characters, but Raven especially, is under a tremendous amount of stress. And now that she has had the key removed from her and she's no longer in the City of Light, I think she's also in a tremendous amount of physical pain. So she was looking pretty strung out, I thought. And um, one of my other friends who watches the show said she wondered when she saw that if if Raven like was sleep deprived and was going to make a bad decision, you know, because of lack of sleep on top of stress and pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, everybody's under a lot of stress. And I think that's maybe also a thing in this episode, especially because there are a lot of bad decisions being made this episode. That's for sure. But it's one of those things, like, you, you understand where they're coming from, because basically everybody's under stress, everybody's desperate, everybody's tired, you know. We're at that point in the season, I think, you know? Yeah, and I try to cut the characters some slack, reminding myself that they don't have the limited, omniscient point of view that we as the viewers do. 
knowing what's going on and then also knowing that it's a TV show and that certain decisions will inevitably have terrible consequences. <laughs> it's true. But also, you know, like I think most of these people are teenagers and, you know, all the current research I've seen shows that um, teenagers' brains are still developing and don't fully develop, especially in the area of um, prudent decision-making until your early 20s. I believe that. But it's it's kind of interesting to me, though, because I, I feel like even though Clark makes a lot of bad decisions, I feel like she's probably been more right more often than a lot of the adults on this show. But yeah, because the adults on this show don't make much better decisions. Right. I mean, I think that the adults on the show have been pretty adherent to their societal structures and codes, and they've started to break away from them a little bit. But you know, the younger people, especially Clark, have moved away from the structures that they grew up with on the Ark. And I think that Clark has had, for the most part, a fairly strong moral conscience, even if she doesn't always make the right decision. True. But anyway, back to Raven and Monty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, poor Monty in this episode. I mean, it started off pretty good for him. <laughs> Oh, uh, that's for sure. Because <laughs> Monty and Harper, apparently. Who knew? Well, apparently Raven knew because when she saw them, she said, finally. <laughs> I know. Which I think most of the audience is like, wait, was that a thing? Yeah, I know. <laughs> At least that that was my thought. Yeah, me too. Like, what do you mean, finally? Finally since, like, five minutes ago? <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't quite understand, but... I don't get it either, but, you know, maybe there's a reason which will... Which we'll get to. But right, poor, poor Monty. Because they make him make the same decision that he had to make before. But the whole thing about him making the decision before was he then was kicking himself for maybe not having to make that decision. And by the way, I'm talking about the decision to kill his mother. Mm -hmm. Which, happy Mother's Day, everybody. But <sighs> I know it's terrible. But um, there was the moment where, I guess it was last week's episode, he seemed to have hope about the City of Light because that meant that his mom was still alive in some capacity somewhere. So, of course, they do this because, I, because cruelty? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, last week when he shot his mom and she died, and then... At the end of the episode, when the camera focused on him, you know, and he was very regretful that maybe he could have actually gotten the chip out of her and brought her back to herself. But then, you know, he did seem to hang on some kind of shred of hope that her mind at least was still alive in the City of Light. I thought they were setting up Monty, you know, about to make one of his own bad decisions where he thwarted whatever plan Raven was going to pursue uh in hopes of keeping his mom alive mm -hmm. and you know we actually s saw murphy making a similar analogous decision to that this week but monty didn't do that in fact he actually made the choice to kind of permanently delete the code that represented his mother's mind that was in the city of light and raven queued it up for him but she you know let him hit enter if it was going to be his decision right I have such, uh, I, not necessarily conflicting, but I, I have feelings about this. 
scene. Because as soon as he does that, and then they're essentially too late after he does that to finish what Raven had started. And then Monty blames Raven for it. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, well, I mean, the the whole purpose of having Hannah stand in the way there was to distract Monty so that could happen. Mm-hmm. And for a while, she did. So even though Monty's yelling at Raven, like, if he'd done that sooner, I mean, if we're going to play the blame game. Right. I'm not blaming Monty. I want to be clear. I'm not blaming him. But, you know, he is at least partly responsible, right? Right. I mean, Allie put Hannah there to give herself enough time to upload her program into the pod, I guess, before she had to delete herself from the mainframe. I guess it was too risky just for her to live in the backpack alone. And um, yeah, I mean, the blame game, like the responsibility game, I guess, without attaching blame to it. You know, if Monty had just deleted her right away, maybe they would have had enough time to delete alley or find the kill switch code or whatever it was that they were trying to find um that raven was trying to find you know by looking in the code the the hidden box that Allie didn't want her to see um which apparently she has anyway even though they weren't fast enough to delete her but you know i'm not sure that any of us when confronted with a situation like that carrying the guilt that we've had if we had been you know put in a position where we felt like we had to shoot our moms like Monty did, then uh, I don't know if anyone would be so quick to to just press delete. Right, right. I mean, I'm not that heartless. I just, you know, there's <laughs> well, plenty yeah. of blame to go around. And ultimately, of course, I mean, it's it's all Allie's doing because Allie's being rather cruel here, which is the point, I guess. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I mean, you know, Monty blaming Raven, and now she's feeling guilty. You're going to have to refresh my memory, Chris. Well, you don't have to, but if you would like to refresh my memory, then you can feel free. I don't think that Raven has committed any grand atrocities like some of the other characters have. She's never massacred 300 people. She's just basically endured a lot of personal pain and tragedy and heartbreak, but I don't think she's committed anything that she could maybe feel so guilty about until right now, even though I think both of us agree it wasn't totally her fault, or maybe even her fault at all. Well, Raven and Monty are essentially in the same boat, uh, responsibility-wise, for the the massacres in of previous seasons. I shouldn't laugh. I shouldn't laugh at the massacres of previous seasons. Raven and Monty bear similar responsibility for past massacres, because you know, Monty essentially enabled Clark to to pull the lever, killing everyone in Mount Weather. And similarly, Raven is the one who hooked up the the dropship situation. Oh, right. She started that at least the the ability to essentially incinerate the three hundred grounders who were sent to come after them. Right. They were complicit in both of those atrocities. Right, both Clark's plan. Yeah. But and they all but they also were I guess if you want to take it to the nuclear analogy since that's what this show is exploring the consequences of nuclear war. They're kind of like Dr. Robert Oppenheimer and everyone who worked on the Manhattan project. 
inventing the atom bomb and then wishing later that they hadn't done it. Yeah? I'd say so. I Except I don't know that they necessarily wish they hadn't done it because it is, you know, it's survival. So I don't know. I don't know how much they regret it if they regret it, you know? Right. I think it's a complicated feelings about it kind of thing, but in both cases, I feel like their deaths would have been imminent had they not done it. Right. So, you know, eh, moral gray area. Yeah, I agree with you. So yeah, plenty of blame to go around. <laughs> That's right. Well, this is cheerful. Yeah. <laughs> What's yeah. next? Let's talk about Pike and Murphy and Indra. Murphy has some interesting stuff this season. That's for sure. Like, I gotta say, season one and season two, I kind of hated Murphy, probably with mostly everybody, except my friend Deborah, who likes him a lot. And uh, there are people who are huge Murphy fans. Yeah, but I just, I hated, like, everything that he did and just his sneering attitude. And here's what I noticed. Like, I liked him in this episode, or even if I, you know, didn't like, I'm like, yay, Murphy, I actually like appreciated him. And I guess I noticed when he's in a scene or paired with one of the protagonist characters, like if he's with Clark or, you know, like Lexa Bellamy in season two or whoever, then, you know, he seems like a real, real jerk. And, um, <laughs> You yeah, know, I mean, in season one, he absolutely was. Like, he was basically a mustache-twirling villain in season one. <laughs> I know. And I mean, all of the makeup that he wore, you know, because he was constantly getting beat up and hung and everything, like, he just looked evil, too, in season one. He walked around with, like, dirt and blood on his face and just looked awful. And I mean, everybody did, though. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he especially, I mean, the actor, his name is... um. Robert something, right? Richard Harmon. Richard Harmon. Yes, thank you. You know, he's got a very distinct looking face that if you style his hair and, you know, put enough like gross makeup on him, like he played a similar bad character in Continuum and mm -hmm. uh, like a villain. And, you know, like you can make his face up to look really evil. But then, you know, there are times also when that's not the case. And um, anyway, so what I noticed, though, was when he's in a scene or spending time with one of our heroes, you know, he comes off as a real jerk. But then when he's paired with some of the characters I don't like, Pike, Jaha, etc., he actually kind of comes off as a good guy because he calls out their hypocrisy and speaks truth to power, I guess. And, you know, his kind of survival at all costs mantra or behavior seems to make more sense when he's um, putting it into practice with one of our bad guys instead of one of our good guys. I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah. Because, yeah, Murphy really is all about survival at all costs. So I think when you put him next to an idealist, he looks really cynical. But when you put him next to somebody who's sort of going out of their way to do things that are questionable, he seems you know, pragmatic. For sure. And he, I mean, survival at all costs for Murphy has been absolutely the way he's lived his life until I think this episode, more or less. So I think we saw him make a decision, you know, that he 
wouldn't blow up the backpack in case it would blow out Amori's mind. And, uh, you know, when the prudent thing to do, kind of similar to Monty, should have deleted his mom right from the get-go, you know, Murphy should have blasted the backpack right away. Well, not blasted, because it would have destroyed everybody. <laughs> right. Because nuclear. Well, he should have done whatever it was that... uh That Pike did, yeah. Yeah, that Pike did. I did think that was really interesting. Like, that's some interesting character development for Murphy, because we have always seen him do pretty much anything it took to survive. So it's like, oh, finally we have found the line that he won't cross, or or at least can't make that decision immediately, you know? Yep. Yeah, it was similar, I guess, to what Monty went through, or analogous, yep. Although I did, I, I did have to wonder, like, they were really keen on destroying the backpack, mm-hmm. but didn't even seem to think about why it might be connected to the pod. <laughs> did they know that it was connected to the pod? They did. They commented on it. They're like, oh, they're using it to power the pod. Hmm. And I'm like, why do they not wonder why? I think that would be the first thing I did, right? I disconnect it. Right, cut the wires. But they didn't, which allowed Allie to escape to the station. Right, now how did that happen? So is the pod... Through the pod. Like, the pod is apparently still connected to, or at least was able to be connected to, what remained of the station. So she could upload herself into the pod and then upload herself into the Ark. Yes. That is apparently Hmm. what she did. So maybe she's in the Ark's mainframe now. No, she was in the Ark's mainframe. Right, but then, no. No, it's the, it's the circle thing that's still... I forget what they called it. The Ring of Fire. Is there a mainframe <laughs> in, in that circle thing? Apparently, because that's where Allie is now. Mainframe 2.0? Huh. I want to say they called it, like, Control or something at some point, didn't they? Or was that in the Oh, you're the probably arc? right. I don't, I don't remember. I got really confused about all the space station names. they went by fast i don't know but you know she's also like i wonder if she's able to like speak with jaha from let's call it control instead of the ring thing (laughs) i wonder if she's able to be in contact with jaha now that she's up in control well but she's still connected to them through the keys to the city of light right but i mean she's technically not with jaha in any physical sense as it is well, that's true, but he's always been sort of close to where the backpack is, right? Generally. I wonder, I mean, I guess maybe what we'll see, like, we don't know for sure, is that, um, you know, do they need physical proximity? Apparently not. <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> well, I guess, I mean, that's quite a range. I was going to say, they- their, their Wi-Fi is good in the future. <laughs> <laughs> it is the future. <laughs> I'm also, I think I'm a little confused because there was a fan fiction that I read where apparently, like, Jaha had to be close to the backpack, and so they took it away from him. Hmm. And, uh, you know, they took it, like, several hundred yards away, and then, you know, he couldn't be in contact with Allie anymore. So I think part of my brain is mixing that up with um, what's actually going on. Did we see Allie talking to Jaha after she uploaded herself into Control, though? Yes, I believe so. Oh, all right, then. (laughs) I paid strict attention, but (laughs) maybe I was just so, like, whoa, well, because I think she tells him something about being connected now, so unless I'm mistaken. And so that must have been 
that's what she meant by talking about the migration. The migration is yes. complete. Yes. All right. Because when she kept saying that during the episode, I was thinking, like, what does she mean? Is she migrating? She's talking about birds. <laughs> <laughs> I thought she meant she was migrating, like, something else. But now I realize she's talking about her own program. Yeah. Indeed she is. Hmm. Well, that's something else. I guess the backpack is moot now. And what are they going to do? Are they going to shoot control out of the sky with a missile? That seems like a bad idea. Hmm. Because missiles always work so well on this show. Right. No problems have ever been caused by missile usage. Right. That's one of the themes of the show. More missiles. More fun. <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, as for, as for the backpack, I assume the only reason that Jaha has always been in proximity to the backpack is because he was protecting it. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Because it housed Allie. So uh, adjacent to this story... Indra is with Murphy and Pike now, which makes me feel sorry for Indra. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> but she she picked up a gun. And I was like, is this the first time Indra has ever picked up a gun, do we think? Oh, definitely. I mean, there was clearly like massive mythology among the grounders. You know, if they picked up a gun, then Mount Weather would uh, annihilate them all. And so, Again, with the missiles. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was like one of the fundamental taboos of Indra's life that she had to overcome in order to do it. And I'm just like, what do, what do we think that means now? Like, what's going to happen in the next two episodes now that Indra has picked up a gun? Well, on the one hand, you could view it as a positive thing because she is a pretty great warrior. And if she has even more powerful weapons at her disposal, then she can help, you know fight the bad guys. But on the other hand, if you look at this as an allegory of um, what happens to, say, native people when guns are introduced and other trappings of Western civilization, it it's not good. So, you know, I don't know what direction they could take it. Yeah, I'm just that that's i guess what i'm getting at here is i feel like there are a couple of different ways they could go with this and i'm nervous about it because i love indra and i don't want anything to happen to her right anything else about these characters well just pike's still kind of a jerk isn't he <laughs> he is you know i read on melanie killingsworth's blog that in her view this storyline and the last week's episode, we're attempting to either redeem Pike or justify his actions. And that may be what the writers intended. I'm, I still don't know. But I don't think that, you know, anything about his actions have been redeemed. You know, I think that um, in a more simplistic show, that might be true. But this show is pretty complex and i you know the more like the characters do things the more i think this show is telling us that nobody's all good nobody's all bad and everybody makes terrible decisions when survival is at stake and stress is high what do you think about if they if the show was trying to redeem pike in some way i feel like from the way they presented it they are trying to i guess present his perspective and and showing it as justified from his perspective but it doesn't work for me yeah <laughs> so i i don't know like i'm i'm confused about it because I, I read her blog post for last week or at least part of it 
where she was talking about that. And I, I have to agree with most of what she said on that because it felt to me, and I mentioned this in my brief episode from last week, that it just, the way it was filmed, it felt very much like like him being justified in his actions. But his actions, as presented, are so horrifying that I just, I kind of can't, I can't negotiate those things in my mind. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's what they're trying to do, but at the same time, I don't feel like it's effective. So I don't know. I, I'm getting mixed messages about it, I guess. Right. And wasn't it Laura Snodgrass who said the musical scoring for the Pike scenes in last week's episode were indicating what you just said, basically trying to justify or show that his actions were justified. Like when No, he- I was saying that and then she disagreed. Oh, with you me. said that. <laughs> oh, okay. She's the one All who right. knows about music and she went back and she listened to it and she said it was actually in a minor key and was more trying to underscore the distress of the delinquents. I gotcha. And I, I don't know. I haven't gone back and, and re-listened to it, but I don't know. To me, the whole thing's presented as, like, tragic but necessary yeah. is how it feels like they're trying to portray it. You know what I mean? Like, I do know what you mean, yeah. Like, that it's a bad thing, but also that he should have done it, or that he at least feels very confident and justified that he did it. You know what I mean? Like, I just... I don't know. I feel so icky about the whole thing. <laughs> I still just don't think I don't uh, maybe this is just me but I don't feel that they've shown us anything in the present or in the flashback you know that makes me think that um I mean violence is bad and killing is wrong but you know I was kind of rooting for Indra to put you know that spike through his heart like forget the 300 death by 300 cuts when you're you know in jail right <laughs> you know just uh Stick it in the jugular. An old-fashioned shiving, <laughs> shanking, Shank. which is it? Yeah. Uh, it's. I think it's either or both. I think a shiv is like a smaller blade that you would slip between somebody's ribs. <laughs> and a shank is more of a sharp but blunter large. I'm just guessing, though. <laughs> not not read, personal knowledge from your time in jail? I read a lot. Um, no. The Shawshank Redemption. It wasn't the Shawshiv Redemption. Okay. <laughs> Anywho. <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm with you that I was kind of, you know, I'm, as always, like, rooting for Indra. But uh, that that actually annoyed me with, with Pike at the beginning of this episode, because the guards under Allie's control come in to check on everybody, see who's mm-hmm. ready to take the key. And Pike then is the only one who says anything. And I'm like, way to draw attention to yourself. Because it seems like they didn't really notice that anything was weird, which is its own thing where I'm just kind of like, really? You don't notice that the dude has got his shirt ripped open and is bleeding heavily? <laughs> but uh, Well, maybe that was part of his idea. Maybe he knew if they went away that Indra would resume, you know, like killing him by a thousand paper cuts. And uh, maybe he thought if he forced the issue, if they noticed, then that would make her have to take action by killing the guards. Yeah. I suppose so. Maybe he wasn't thinking that far ahead, but... I just don't know what that guy is ever thinking, because it all just seems wrong to me. (laughs) Everything that he... Everything that he does. 
Yeah, I don't like him, but great job that the actor does because uh, in portraying a thoroughly unlikable, unredeemable <laughs> character. I do like that actor. I, I think Mike Beach does a good job, but yeah, big time. But Pike is the worst. Totally. Anyway, shall we move on to Clark and Luna and Adventure Squad, as they are <laughs> apparently known? Yes. So I gotta say, like, what up, Clark? Like, why? <laughs> why? You know, I am right there with you. What made her think that it was a good idea to try to put the flame into Luna, you know, like, against her will? And I mean, you know, they were very rushed. They didn't have a chance to really talk and explain anything. And I feel like, you know, they for sure they should have. I mean, they tried to make some blanket statements like, these people are dead. You need to come be the commander, you know? And then she's like, no, it's like, duh, of course, when you frame things that way, you know, and don't give someone the full picture of what's going on. But like, what on earth gave her the idea that that would, you know, work or that it would be a good idea or moral, a moral choice? I mean, I don't think she did think it was a moral choice, but this is, again, sort of, going back to the themes of the show, because as much as I love Clark, and you know I love Clark, mm -hmm. she is wrong here. Like, she's just wrong. And I got so nervous when it seemed like that's what she was going to do. I'm just kind of like, no, Clark. <laughs> there are so few people to root for anymore. Right. <laughs> Don't do this to me. But she did. And it's one of those things, like, I understand why she does it, because just like Raven, you know, she's desperate and worn out. And I get it on some level, but at the same time, you know, Luna's right. Like, how are you then any better than the thing that you're trying to stop, you know? Yeah. I mean, we know that she is, but at the same time, just that's not okay. Well, what are the things that make you better than the thing that you're trying to stop? Is it you know, adherence to your moral code, even when, even when, you know, things are hard or maybe impossible. You know, like I think that uh, in literature, we've learned that one of the themes is the end doesn't justify the means. And, um, you know, if Clark had been successful in putting the flame into Luna against her will, I don't think that it would have necessarily taken over Luna's personality. I think she would have still been aware of what was done to her and she would have been pretty pissed. And she probably also would have been a piss poor commander if she didn't decide to do it herself. Right. That was actually something I wanted to talk about too, about Luna, but we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> All right. But yeah, I, I just no Clark. <laughs> I mean, it's not out of character is the thing. You know what I mean? Because Clark has always been sort of a whatever it takes to protect everyone kind of person. So it's not surprising to me that she'd essentially sacrifice Luna to this. I mean, you know what you know what sense I'm getting at here, right? Like I do. I just um maybe I'm projecting my expectations onto Clark, but I guess I would have thought that even though it's only in, in the showtime been maybe three days since Titus shot Lexa, I would have thought that that would have been pretty transformational for Clark. I mean, she's had several transformational moments, like after the missile 
after, you know, Lexa convinced her to let the missile obliterate or hit Tan DC and not to warn people. Um, you know, after that, Clark said, never again, I will never do something like that again. And I don't know, I guess I just, uh, I would have thought that if Clark wasn't already there with wanting to form a coalition of the willing instead of a coalition of the unwillingly chipped, that, you know, she would have had more questions. I didn't feel like it was last resort time either. You know, she spent like zero time trying to be persuasive with Luna or to give her the entire picture. You know what I mean? Right. I don't know. It's hard for me to say one way or the other, because it feels like at least a little bit of time had passed between last week's episode and this week's episode. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I mean, granted, you would think that they'd show us if there was any significant conversation, but I don't know. Three months later. (laughs) Not that long. But uh, (laughs) I don't know. It just from the interactions that we got, it seemed like to some extent Luna wasn't willing to listen Right. So I don't know. I'm I'm uncertain. It does seem like Luna has children, though, yeah? I don't know. I'm not sure if they were her children or if they were just her adopted kind of... I don't know. Well, I assumed that little girl that we saw twice that Luna looked at with, like, a lot of affection. Right, and the hugging. Yep. I thought that was her and Derek's child together. It could be. I mean, I don't know. And that presumably I also thought that child was a nightblood and that maybe Clark would move on to her next if she couldn't get Luna. Oh, I hadn't even thought of that. I assumed that Luna isn't old enough to have a child that old, but I don't know. Right. I guess it would have depended how many years had passed since she fled the conclave. And Well, the conclave was, what did they say, four or five years ago? Right. And that, they might not have actually said, but. And that kid was a little older, yeah. But just like theoretically, she would be about Lex's age. Mm-hmm. I would think, since the Nightbloods that we saw who were getting ready for their conclave were all about the same age. Granted, right. they had the whole thing about how sometimes there are Nightbloods that they don't find until later. So really, anything is possible. <laughs> Yeah. There are lots of loopholes built into this story. Also, the the whole Nightblood Conclave thing makes no sense. I've said it before, I think, but <laughs> it makes no sense. No, it definitely doesn't. Like, who's having, I mean, assuming that Nightbloods are created gestationally and that they don't have like a little stock of, you know, those uh, futuristic hypodermic needles that they're randomly injecting people with, like, you know. That would make things a lot easier. Wouldn't it, though? Like, then you'd think that, you know, passing down that trait genetically, like who's having all these kids, especially if there's a conclave and they all kill each other and then there's just one exactly blood left. Like what's going on? I, I want to sit down with some of the writers and, and grill them about this basically because I it doesn't make sense. <laughs> well, unless it's a recessive trait and so you know, people who aren't Nightbloods themselves can have children that are Nightbloods. I suppose so. But it's still awfully wasteful in a population that doesn't have a lot of lives to spare. Exactly. And actually, it's exactly what Clark said. I feel like that was a moment of breaking the fourth wall when she was yelling at Titus about what kind of stupid system is this, uh, you know, where yep. yeah, well, <laughs> I, that that part still makes me laugh. Me too. 
I was like, oh, look, Clark is me. So I, I don't know if, um, if I've talked about this with you, Chris, but have we talked about how we think that maybe Clark will give herself a transfusion somehow from a nightblood, you know, one of the remaining alive ones, and that then she'll take the flame herself? I think we might have. I don't remember, but I, I know I mentioned this in last week's episode that I feel like that's maybe where we're going from here, just because, I mean, last week, Luna seemed pretty adamant that she wasn't going to do it. So I was thinking Raven has Becca's notebook. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's something in there about the gene therapy right? that Raven will somehow be able to follow up on or something. Just because, like, I don't, I feel like we're running out of options. <laughs> yeah, nobody, nobody wants any part of the flame except for Clark, I guess. So it's like either they will figure out how to develop the gene therapy again. I don't know how they'll manage that if that's where it's going. But yeah, otherwise, I don't know if transfusions would work. I, I mean, I kind of wouldn't think so, but. Yeah, they probably wouldn't work for very long. Um, it's science I mean, fiction. Who knows? Well, who knows? But I mean, there is precedent in season two for blood transfusions, you know, serving a purpose, which was the people of Mount Weather, like allowing them to not die of radiation sickness. True. You know, maybe Clark could be a temporary nightblood. Hmm. I don't know. So what did you think about Jasper in this whole sequence? Oh, Jasper. He's falling into old patterns, by which I mean he immediately gets a crush on a girl in a new location. <laughs> like, there's a new group <laughs> of people, and he immediately sets his sights on on a pretty girl. It happened with Octavia at the beginning of the series. It happened with Maya when they were in Mount Weather. And now it's Shay. Poor Shay. Jasper doomed her. Ugh. <sighs> Also, do we think that Jasper is chipped now? Well, that is a question. He could be. I mean, there wasn't anything that I saw from his behavior that immediately made me think so. I actually didn't think of it until I saw this question that you wrote in the show notes. But, you know, I actually I was happy for Jasper in this episode because I thought, oh, you know, his heart is opening back up to this girl. You know, maybe he's finally starting to get over Maya and um, come back to life. Why do you think he was chipped? Because we didn't see follow up on them talking about how they had to chip him is mostly what it was. Also, there's a recurring theme in this episode of implanted chipped spies. Right. We see it with the people, you know, Luna's people come back and they're chipped. One of the people who went with Murphy and Pike and Indra one of them was chipped, which is how they knew that they'd be in the temple, you know. How would they have oh, – I mean, it seems like Ali's program has made it so people need to accept the key, presumably of their free will. Like, we still haven't seen anyone just shove it into somebody's mouth and hold their mouth closed until they swallow, right? We've seen them Correct. threaten to kill people they love, and then they agree to take it, but – yeah, it's been coerced, but it hasn't been physically forced. So how would they have coerced Jasper into taking a chip, I wonder? I don't know. Well, especially because, I mean, I think that it's a very, it's a distinct possibility. And, you know, now my mind is racing with um, 
you know, I want to go watch the episode again and observe his behavior to see, like, maybe, maybe the reason that he, uh, got a crush on Shay was that he had forgotten Maya because he was in this chip situation. Uh, see, I wasn't even thinking about that because I was just thinking towards the end of the episode. Because hmm. when he's, well, I mean, because they talk about how Jasper's, Ali says Jasper is a problem. Mm-hmm. We need to have him take a key to the City of Light. Although I was thinking as she said that, I'm like, couldn't you just like knock him unconscious? That would serve the same purpose. Right. <laughs> but he tells Octavia that he's still himself, but that doesn't mean anything. Right. <laughs> Not really. But he's he doesn't have any overt reactions to anything. There's nothing which isn't necessarily out of the ordinary. So I don't know. I just it's a possibility, is all. Well, you'd have to think that somebody would have been chipped, because how did Luna's soldiers get chipped? Well, they were, they made the return trip to the uh, oil rig, right? Right, but I mean, where did they get their chips from, their keys? I don't know. Maybe Jasper. The, the mainland somewhere. Yeah, but presumably they had only come over because of the signal fire, and then but they went right there back. There was the whole thing about how... Oh, uh, Bellamy was theorizing that Allie had found them because they had, there was a, there was the, um, there was the drone when they were at Nyla's. Oh, right, right. So apparently the drones had been following them since then. Hmm. So presumably Allie could have sent people from Polis or wherever to intercept Luna's people. Maybe they had set a signal fire and and right. gotten them then so and said here swallow this just try yeah. it try it you'll like it <laughs> the first one's free speaking of people who are potentially chipped my friends deborah and april who side note i met them way back from buffy the vampire slayer fandom deborah wrote fan fiction for buffy and she writes fan fiction for The Hundred as well, mostly Dr. Mechanic. April made Buffy fan vids and now is making fan vids for The Hundred, some of which I uh, shared with you, Chris, which are pretty awesome. And um, isn't it funny just how, you know, history repeats itself. But um, I was discussing with them that we think, Deborah and I think Harper might be chipped. And mm -hmm. April isn't sure. She feels like it seems like it might be too obvious and she wants to be surprised that it's actually somebody else being chipped. But I think Harper is chipped because somehow, remember, Allie's like, Sinclair is dead. Well, how do you know that? That's not important right now. So she has some knowledge. I guess I, I suppose that Jasper could know that Sinclair was dead, but Harper would have known too. And, you know, I was thinking like, we were talking about, we hadn't seen whatever this attraction was between Monty and Harper before. It's not like it's some long simmering romance that's been going on and that we were like, would they please not that just we get know together of. already, right? Unless it was <laughs> off screen, which is where all the best simmering romances happen. Um, but, you know, maybe Harper was sent in to seduce Monty to distract him from helping Raven, you know, crack the matrix code but remember they assumed it was either 
Sinclair or Monty. They didn't, they didn't even mention Raven. So I don't think anybody in Arcadia was chipped. But why wouldn't they have mentioned Raven? What do you mean? Did they not know? They didn't know it was Raven who was looking at the code. But why would they, why would they have not assumed that it was Raven? Like, why would they say Sinclair or Monty? Did they not know that Raven was back in Arcadia? No, they knew she was there, but they didn't know that she could code. Hmm. Because that was, Jaha said, well, once Allie said something about somebody is looking at her code, Jaha said it could either be Sinclair or Monty, because those are the two people who they knew were out there as part of this group who was back at Arcadia. Right. And those were the two who were capable of coding. Well, maybe that's why they sent Harper to go seduce Monty if they didn't know Raven was doing it, then... But Harper would have known that Raven was the one who was doing it. Oh, if she was chipped, that's right. She would have seen it, and so they would have known that it was Raven. So, All right, that's a good point. So there you go. Nobody in Arcadia is chipped. Maybe. We'll see. So we were going to talk about Luna and the Conclave situation and her being Commander, possibly. Right. Because here's the thing. Because <laughs> I saw some people who seemed upset about what... Luna was saying in this episode about how, you know, she left the Conclave not because she was scared of losing, but because she knew she was capable of winning. Mm-hmm. And they seemed offended on Lex's behalf. But <laughs> I was just thinking, like, the temperament that Luna has, the fact that she has that attitude kind of inherently means that she wouldn't be a suitable commander, right? I mean, that's the whole thing. She's a pacifist to the extent that she wouldn't make a good commander to me. Right. And if you think the conclave means, like, kill everybody so you're the last person standing, you know, they ought to be happy. Because if she had won, then Lexa would have been dead. Well, but that's, I mean, that's part of their issue, though. Right. Is that they feel like, I mean, the the people who are talking about this feel like the show is saying Luna is more badass than Lexa. Oh, I see. Well, maybe not more badass, but she was- And they're, they, they feel like they're taking away something from Lexa, but I don't feel like they are, because, you know, the fact that Luna can't make that decision, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, the things that we've seen Lexa do, I don't, I don't see Luna doing those same things, you know what I mean? Right. Well, I mean, maybe, like, what Luna was saying is that when it comes to hand-to-hand lethal combat- she would have been able to kill everybody because, you know, she is or was better at that kind of fighting than everybody else. Not that they were bad at it, but she was just like, she had this really amazing talent that she abhorred and didn't want to have. And she didn't want to spend her life killing, you know, but I mean, obviously, like her temperament, you know, and her priorities are not what were needed for a commander of the grounders. Right. Or maybe, like, you know, in the long view, maybe they were exactly, maybe they are or will be exactly what the grounders need to kind of prioritize and bring peace. But, yeah, I mean, you could be a really awesome fighter, but that doesn't mean that, you know, you can be, you know, a leader of people in a violent survivalist situation. Exactly. Thank you. That's all I'm saying. Boom. <laughs> You know, that one particular skill set is not really 
everything that's that's required, you know? Yeah. Especially since we saw the the ambassadors were ready to overthrow Lexa when Lexa was trying to bring peace, you know. I, I don't feel like they would have been any cooler with Luna. No doubt. It would have been a lot worse, probably. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, from everything that we've seen, Lexa had been, you know, a great commander, stable. You know, she was awesome at fighting. We saw her defeat Rowan. Rowan. I was going to call him Rohan, but I think that was a... That's like some other science fiction fantasy series. That's Lord of the Rings, yeah. (laughs) Right, yeah. You know, and then she killed the Ice Queen, and, and, you know, she was amazing and badass and really good at fighting, but she's also a really good diplomat and... You know, she has that or had, I guess, that thing that allowed her to make impossible choices without the kind of hesitation that we've observed from Monty and Murphy when they were unable to, you know, make a decision that would quickly anyway, that would, um, you know, kill someone they loved. Mm-hmm. So, yes, maybe Luna is a better fighter, but that doesn't mean that she'd be a better commander. That's all I'm saying. Excellent point. A good point, maybe, to sum it all up, actually. So once again, thank you for joining us, Sally. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's always nice to be had. If you have thoughts about this episode that you'd like to share with us, you can do that in a number of ways. You can email us at feedback at askgenretv.com. You can record a voice memo with your smartphone and email it to us. You can also call and leave a message on our listener voicemail line at 972-514-7223. We're on Twitter at AskGenreTV. Finalysis is part of the Ask Genre TV family of podcasts. You can find our other podcasts for Killjoys and Orphan Black and Lost Girl and some other things, including other episodes of Finalysis about Winona Earp over at AskGenreTV.com. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Chris. My name is Sally, and you can't spell phonalysis without fan. It's true. Thanks for listening. <laughs>